Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. Now here is Pastor Scott Bloyer. Well, good morning. I hope you enjoyed that. That was fun, huh? Good singing? Yeah! Yeah. I don't sing. I'm the person in the Bible that they said make a joyful noise. So I sit in the back and go, praise God, I got daughters that can sing because I can't. Hey, this morning we're continuing in our series, um, Extreme Makeover Life Edition. Uh, I'd, I'd like to joke, we could actually say it's like the Hebrew edition, but you know, um, we're talking about Nehemiah. We've been going over Nehemiah for the last couple of weeks for this month, and we've been taking a look at how God has really moved people from one place to another, how he's changed the nation, how God built a wall. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is inside your program, there's an insert that has all of the things that we're going to kind of go, with, uh, go along with this morning. I do want to let you know I have broken a tradition. <laughs> there are no fill in the blanks. Oh, I know many of you are like, oh, this ain't church. We got to go home now. What the heck's that boy doing? Plus, look at the shirt he's wearing. Something wrong with him. Um, I want to encourage you this morning to be uncomfortable. Um, because I think that in this place and in this time, with what's going on in our world and our country, we have gotten too comfortable. And so as we look at Nehemiah, as we look at the story I really want to challenge you that. And, I, and I'll be honest, I've really prayed about this. I've had people pray with me. Uh, I hope and pray that God smashes some of your toes this morning with what's going on in our life and in our church and in our community uh, because I believe that's what he's doing. Now, I want us to look at Nehemiah. As we go through this Nehemiah, I want you to know we're going to cover a lot of ground. And so for the first part of this, this is going to be a sprint. And then we're going to settle into a marathon pace towards the end. But I want you to understand... We're, if you ain't following along, uh, I'll pray for you. So this is what we're going to do. Um, we have been looking at Nehemiah. He was a politician. I mean, he was, a, he was an architect. He had to roll all these different roles into one person. God said, okay, Nehemiah, I want you to do this. You're going to go back to your community. You're going to help them build this wall. And I want you to understand that, that this wall is going to protect my people. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be a confined space that's going to help them live. And so as Nehemiah gets to this place, I want you to look at with me in uh, Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. It comes to the place, it says, so on October 2nd, the wall was finally finished. Just 52 days after we had begun. Think about it, there was a wall built around a community of people in 52 days. You know that they didn't have some of the people in city like we do, Right? We've got to do a rewrite on that one because you didn't put the fire escape in the right place. Okay, so 52 days. We've got this. It's a joke. Lighten up. You'll get it later. <laughs> and it says, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. I want you to circle the word God right there because many times when people read this story about Nehemiah, they look at Nehemiah. But you got to understand that Nehemiah was just a tool. Nehemiah was just a man that God chose to use to do something great. Because all of this was for the glory of God. Not for the glory of Nehemiah. I'll be honest with you, I get a little irritated when I'm around people at church because they'll go, oh, look at what the pastor did. No, he did nothing. He just followed a call. God did everything. See, I really honestly believe God uses the unqualified, but he qualifies the unqualified to do what they do. 
You know, so we have Nehemiah, who's built it. So 52 days. Now, the people of Jerusalem, they did something after this was done. They gathered together, and they decided to have church. Can you believe? Okay, after hundreds of years of their wall being apart, their city torn down, they get together, and on, uh, on in, uh, sorry, in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, so on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the scroll out before, of the law before the assembly which included the men and the women and all the children, old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon. Can I just stop right there? He did from what to when? From early morning until noon. He didn't have people going. That preacher's going long, right? Okay. Whole morning, he's, he's being a jerk. Okay, so... It says he faced the square inside the water gate from early morning till noon, and he read it aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people paid close attention to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To now, see, did you notice they made a high wooden platform? Those of you that think at a church that they have a stage, they're a little too hip hop and whatever, you know, rock and roll. They got a stage. Ezra had one. Come on, the new, the Old Testament man. Ezra was standing on a stage, getting ready to teach. He took the book of law out, and it says all these different people were there. But I want you to look. It says, Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, their great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands towards heaven. Then they bowed down, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These people understood that the wall being built was amazing. It was incredible. And they did it with the help and with the power and strength of God. They did not do it on their own. It was not just them. God did this. And they realized it. So they dropped down. They worshiped. They got on their hands and knees and praised God. They raised their hands in worship. I know some of you are like me that have grown up in a conservative background and just doing this was like whoa you know i talked to different people it's like i do this i feel like whoo i just went crazy right you know i always felt like when i went to church and i did that you know i kept waiting for one of the husher i mean ushers to come and jump all over me you know, I can, I can, you know, that's why I love reading the Bible, because the Bible says they raised their hands, they got down on their hands and knees. They didn't care what the person next to them was doing. They had come into God's presence, they were excited, they had seen him do something amazing. So then they get together, they say, okay, we are not going to mess up like our parents did. We are not going to mess up like our great-grandparents. We are not going to make those mistakes. So we are going to make a promise. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to sign, seal, and deliver it to God. And that's what they did. In fact, they got so arrogant enough to say, you know, you know those people back when Moses was in, in the desert and they messed up and they had to walk around for all those years? We're going to do better than they did. We are not going to make those mistakes. So they made some promises. Here are a couple of the promises they made. They're going to follow the commands of the Lord. They made the promise to not let their families marry outside of the Hebrew people because God knew how stupid his people were. He said, don't marry outside because as soon as the Hebrew people saw what someone else was doing, they were like, oh, that's kind of cool. Wow, let's try that one, you know. Was led into a lot of things into the temple that was not meant for the temple. So he said, okay, don't marry outside the people, okay. He says, promise to not work or sell anything on the Sabbath. Promise to pay the temple tax. Promise to bring in the first fruits. 
By the way, first fruits is a biblical term for bringing in, once you get something, the very first amount of money, grain, fruit, they brought that to the temple first. They brought to God first, not what's left over after the bills were paid. <clears throat> so, he says, promise not to go... <laughs> Sorry, was that... Anywho. Promise not to neglect the temple of God. Don't let the temple get messed up. Don't let it fall down. Don't let it get ruined like you did before. These are all the promises they made. They said, God, we are going to do this. We are excited. We're going to make a promise. We're worshiping you. And then they had Ezra go up on the wall. Nehemiah was there. They commissioned the wall. They prayed over the wall. All the people gathered around. They worshiped, and they worshiped God, and they were just, they were so excited. Now, what happened was Nehemiah then has to go back to his job where he came from. Now, we don't understand why. Maybe it was he was really good at serving wine to the king, and so the king's like, dude, I need your work back, you know? So he comes back, so he goes back to where his job was. Well, let's fast forward 12 years, right? Fast forward 12 years. What has happened? A whole lot, okay? A whole lot. 12 years later, Nehemiah gets a message. You, you gotta come back. These people, they've just gotten stupid, you know? They, I don't know what happened. It's 12 years. You've got to come back and check this out. So Nehemiah says, okay. He goes to the king says, hey, I've got to go back. I've got to help my stupid family. So that's okay. It's all right. They were stupid. I look in the mirror many times ago. Stupid, right? My dad growing up. Now, many of you may have not heard this, but I used to get in trouble. <laughs> not that often. And so when I would get in trouble, and I'd say, well, dad... It was someone else's fault. He's like, no wrong. Go in the bathroom, look at the mirror, and point a finger at the person that just did the dumbest thing in the world. And I said, that's me, okay? Right? It was, it was amazing how many times my, my dad, and I'm, I know that I've caught on to something that my dad's done, and I do it to my own kids. My, my dad was key at saying this. You'd, you'd walk in, and you'd go, well, dad, I did this, and he'd go, and you'd go, well, I thought, and he'd go, uh-uh. What was the first problem? And you're like, what? He's like, you thought. <laughs> and you're like, okay. You know, and you go back. But it was one of those. So this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's coming back to his group of people. He's like, ah, you thought. Okay? The problem was you thought. So he went through and he says this. Okay, we're going to get together. And he starts walking in and he travels in. So if you turn to chapter 13 in Nehemiah. Nehemiah has got everything together. He shows up, and it says, Before this had happened, Eleshib, the priest who had been appointed to supervise of the storerooms of the temple of our God, who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storeroom and placed it under Tobiah's disposal. Now, if you haven't been following this story, if you haven't been reading along, you need to understand, Tobiah, in this picture, is the guy that has, throughout the whole uh, first 10 chapters of Nehemiah have been, has been trying to kill Nehemiah. Okay? He's been trying to kill. He's the one that kept calling Nehemiah, come meet with us, as they were trying to set him up to kill him. Okay? That's the same Tobiah. 12 years later, how stupid can you be? This is the guy that was trying to stop the building of the wall. This is the guy that was trying to kill Nehemiah. What does the priest do? Hey, Tobiah, why don't you have a room in God's temple? Come, come on. Come hang out. Now, I want you to know, it was a storeroom, right? It was a storeroom that was supposed to be holding first fruits. Well, if he's got that much room to build up house in the storeroom, do you think there's much first fruits in there? No. So Tobiah is now taking up room in the temple. The first fruits are not being in there. Okay. Now, what I love about this story is T uh, uh, Nehemiah 
gets UFC on these people. Okay, if you don't know what that means, that means ultimate fighting championship. Okay, he goes UFC. He comes in. He sees what Tobiah is doing, and he finds out what's going. So he goes into the storeroom. You know what he does? He doesn't walk in and he say, um, "I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Could, could, could you please leave?" No, he walks in, he grabs everything, he chucks it out in the street, and he says, don't come back, sucker. Now, I know some of you are going, he said sucker in church. <laughs> I want you to understand something. I think forceful words come when God is being forceful about a situation that needs to be changed. We need to change what's going on in the rooms of our churches. We need to be changing what's going on in the rooms of our homes. Now, I know some of you may go, oh, man, that guy was just being mean. No, it's biblical. You want to get upset with someone? Get upset with God. Because he is, I really honestly, if I've been praying and, and I've been seeking the Lord and I've been watching all that's going on, God is sick and tired of us. And I believe a lot what's going on in this world is he's like, you think things are rough? Let me show you rough. I mean, look at what he did to Nehemiah's people. You understand that? God allowed for that wall to be destroyed. God allowed for the people to be taken away. God allowed for those things to happen. Where are we at with this? They broke the first promise. They didn't take care of the temple. They didn't follow his commands. Then it goes on and says the temple was neglected and abandoned in 10, uh, verses 10 through 13. 10 through 13, he says, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given what they was due, so they and the singers were to conduct the worship services, had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Immediately, he confronted them. He got in their face. He's like, I, am, I, I can't believe this happened. 12 years later, Nehemiah's like, okay, we just rebuilt the wall. We saw God do something amazing. You all made these promises. Kind of like, New Year's resolutions. And he said, you know what? We are going to... And then he leaves 12 years later. How quick do we forget? How quick do we forget? I mean, I'll be honest. I remember getting on an airplane after September 11th. I was terrified. I was terrified. I really... There was a comedian that said this about flying an airplane. I agree with him. I believe that you should fly in the back of the airplane because you never see an airplane back into a mountain. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with him on that. I, you know, I, I like Bill Cosby's statement. He walks onto the airplane. He goes, hope the plane don't crash. He said, someone went, here, here. He goes, it was the pilot. <laughs> right? How quick do we forget that all of a sudden now we're, we're, oh, get on the plane. Don't worry about it. Security's no big deal. Right? I, I remember things. You can ask my wife. I am the jumpiest person in the world. I am. In fact, when we go to restaurants, I don't like sitting with my back to the door. Drives me nuts. I can't do it. <laughs> see, I, I saw a couple of husbands going, see, I ain't the only one. <laughs> okay? Because I haven't forgotten certain things. In the neighborhood I grew up in, that wasn't a smart thing. Sit with your back to the door. You know, so I, those are, see, Nehemiah's people, they got stupid. They forgot. Temple was a mess. Goes on. People were working and selling things on the Sabbath. Uh, re, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. I love this. On one Sabbath day, I saw men of Judea treading the wine presses. They were also bringing in bundles of grain and loading them on their donkeys. And on that day, day, they were bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on the Sabbath. 
There were also some men from Tyre bringing in fish and kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the leaders of Judea, or Judah, sorry. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in, the, in this evil way? So again, he goes to the leaders and gets in their face again. He's like, I, I can't believe you're doing this again. And it says he confronts them. He doesn't slap them on the hand. For some of them, he actually slaps them in the face. Fast forward to chapter 13, verses 23 through 28. And about the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Remember? We're not supposed to marry outside the family. We're not supposed to do this. What do we got? We got a whole bunch of people getting outside, married outside. Even worse, he says, half their children spoke in the language of, language of Ashdod or some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. They had gotten so far away from being who they were that they forgot to even speak in the language that they were supposed to. I think in some cases, a lot of places have gotten so far away from God that you barely ever hear someone use the Bible when they speak. Now, I'm not going to be ashamed about this, and I'm not, you know, if I hurt someone's feeling, that's too bad. But this is a church. We use the Bible, He's the authority. That's where it comes from. If you don't like to hear the Bible, then you're not going to like Northgate. Because that's where the authority comes from. Not Ken, not me, not the board. It comes from God. And so as this goes on, Nehemiah's upset. He's, he's, he's lost it. Okay, I want you to understand. How many of you as parents understand this statement, he has lost it? Okay. <laughs> Somebody's going, preach it. Okay. This is what happens. Look what it says. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I would have loved to have been there, don't you? This little this guy was like 85 years old by now. Okay, 85 years. He cursed him. Now look at what it says. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> Come on, really? 85-year-old man chasing around. He's like, son, you're getting a whooping, right? Comes out. He chased. Now, this is the thing you've got to get when it says pulled out their hair, it wasn't their hair on their head, it was their beard. Because their beard was a representation of their holiness. Was there, he's like, oh, you think you're holy. You think you got to take that. Chase them around. Beat them. I got excited when I started reading that. I was like, come on. When you, now, let's be honest. Let's stop right here. Let's think about this. What would you do if you showed up at church and the pastor started walking around knocking people out? I heard about that. Wow. I'm in the back row going, we got to get out of here now. <laughs> See, my, my wife would be like, stand there and take it like a man, boy. Ten. <laughs> She's in there going, amen. Okay? It says, I, I, I made them swear before God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded there was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and he made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign wives. How could, he, how could you even think of committing the sinful deed and acting unfaithfully? Unfaithfully. A lot of times we tie that to relationships with people, but we don't re- tie that to our relationship with, with God. That many of us are unfaithful to God. And I really had to walk through that one this week. You know, what, what happens in a relationship where unfaithfulness happens? Well, the relationship, what, grows 
apart. Promises are broken. Uh, the relationship isn't, there isn't communication in the relationship. Then someone starts to talk about, well, I love someone else, and I love someone else, and, you know, I don't have, I don't remember why we got married, or, you know, those kind of, I mean, I got to thinking about those things, and we do that to God. We have gotten too comfortable. We have gotten too comfortable. In my mind, I really thought about this. Last night, my wife and I were sitting there talking about what's going on, and, and, and this morning, and in my mind, I really got to the point where I almost thought about coming in here and taking up all the chairs, and putting them outside and say, hey, let's go have church. Sit on the floor. Because I think for some of us, the representation of just a chair is too comfortable. It's too comfortable. I mean, that's where sometimes I almost wish we went back to the old pew. Because that was uncomfortable. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you sit on that wood back thing, you're like, oh, man, it starts to rock. Your mom would be like, shh. You're moving everything. You know, the person at the end of the road is going, could you stop rocking, please? Right? You got that whole idea? I mean, I grew up in this. My dad, it was awesome. My brother one time fell asleep in church. It was beautiful. Had his hands like this on his face, was falling asleep. Mind you, it's a Baptist, old Baptist church with pews, wood pews. No little cushion back, right? My brother goes, makes that kind of noise. My dad goes, it's like, sweet. We lean back. He reaches out and he knocks his hand away. Hand goes away. What's the other thing in front of him? Wood pew. Bam! All we heard was poof, and he came up. Perfect red line right here, man. It was awesome. Both me and my brother are like. <laughs> my dad did the. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> Uncom- we've gotten too comfortable. We've gotten so uncomfortable that we can whine and complain about what kind of music's played. We can whine and complain about what time church starts. We whine and complain about whether or not it's warm or cold in the building. Come on, please. We want to complain about the way people dress. Please come to me and tell me you don't like the way I dress. Please tell me. Oh, well, I'll pull a Nehemiah on you. I got to remember that. What are you doing? I'm pulling a Nehemiah. I'll knock you out right? This is the reason why Jesus didn't come for us to be comfortable. Some of you may be here for the very first time and you're going, man, I ain't come to church like this. These people are weird. You guys up there with a shirt that says anti-hell and all that, you know, I'm, I'm gone, right? Well, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that I am so passionate about you being here that I don't want the people here to get so comfortable that they forget about the people outside the church that have gotten comfortable in their life of sin and loss and separation from God. I, I'm done. I'm done. Ask the students. I get fired up, man. Sunday morning, I, I guarantee you, your kids are going, something's wrong with that man. <laughs> but I'll guarantee you this, they're doing something different than you. Last week, we had over 100 students. 100 students, okay? I heard one girl called me up. She says, I don't know if I can come. To, I said, why not? She goes, because I'm trying to get my three friends to come to church with me, and I don't know if they'll come. I said, you come anyway. If they come, they come. That's fine. She goes, but I want them to come and hear about Jesus. How many of you thought that way this morning? Or was it, oh, I got to get up. I'm running late. I got the kids. <laughs> you know, come on. Let's be honest. Most of our arguments between husband and wife happen when? Sunday morning. How many times do you threaten to kill your kids, right? 
Come on, I'm going to let you know about Jesus because I'm about to send you there. Right? God doesn't want us to be comfortable. He has come to the place where he says, you know what? You need to understand what I am doing. You need to understand where I am at. Now, some of you may be saying, well, that's Old Testament. That's Nehemiah. Let me read you a little New Testament. Okay? Let me tell you where the Bible has gone with this. Let me tell you where Jesus has gone with this. Okay? Because some of us are looking around going, oh, man. This... But Jesus is nice. Jesus is about peace and love. Kumbaya. Right? Let's hold hands. Yeah. You know what? I'll be honest with you. There, I, as I look at the church, there are a couple of vo- viewpoints that kind of drive me nuts. Okay, First viewpoint is more of the liberal side of what they think Jesus is. And Jesus is this feathered-haired guy that walks around and says, I love you to everybody. I can't respect that Jesus because I could beat him up. Okay? I'm serious. I can't do it. But then you have the more conservative side that has more of a, a fundamental idea where Jesus walks in and you go, you're all going to hell. You know, that guy scares me. Okay? But what I see in the Bible is a guy that's in the middle, that has a balance of love and of confrontation. Notice, most of the people he confronted were who? Religious people. His love came to those people that were dying and separated from God. So I think as we look at this, I want you to take that balanced viewpoint of who Jesus is. And as we look at this, look at what it says in Mark 11, uh, verses 12 through 14. And I'm reading from the New Living. It says, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus felt hungry. He noticed a fig tree a little way off that was, it was in full leaf. So it was in full, it was looking good. He went over to find if he, see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for, fru- for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say, okay? The disciples heard him say, what, what was so big deal about this? Because if you fast forward a couple of verses, they come back by that tree, that tree is dead. That tree is dead. So don't tell me Jesus is, oh, look at the pretty flowers. <laughs> right? He walked up that tree. His hunger was there. He said, you know what? We've got, I, I'm, I need to take care of things. He saw there was no fruit. He's like, nobody. Don't let anybody eat from you again. And the tree died. Isn't that a little confrontational? Right? The tree died right then and there. Why? Because it wasn't bearing fruit. Let's talk about us. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Husband, how is your relationship with your wife? Wife, how is your relationship with your husband? How are you doing with your kids? Those of you that are single, you're like, I don't have a husband or wife. Okay, how are you treating your parents? How are you honoring God through your job? See, because that is a representation. Those are fruits of what our life looks like and what it should be showing people about Jesus. I just want to ask this question. If Jesus were to walk up to you as a tree today, what would he say? Would he say no more? Or would he say, oh man, good fruit, good fruit. See, moving here, I had to learn something new because... Uh, I have never had a fruit tree before, and we had a peach tree in the front of our house. And I didn't realize how many peaches come from a tree. I, I want you to know right now, I hate peaches. <laughs> it's like, you want a peach? No, <laughs> I'll hit you, you give me a peach. You know, it's, we had so many that eventually a gentleman came by. He says, you know, I saw a lot of the peaches were falling on the ground. You mind if I pick some? I was like, dude, you want me to come help you? Please, come. That is a picture of a tree in full flu- fruit that is growing are you next question okay we've got john 2 13 to 16 it says it was time for the annual passover celebration and jesus went to the temple 
Okay? In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He saw money changers being uh, behind their counters. Jesus made a whip. Uh, do I need to go any further? Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep, the oxen, scattered the money, uh, changers, coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. Then going over to the people who had sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Don't turn my father's house into a marketplace. Okay, where's the nice little Jesus now? He made a whip. Come on. How would you like to some crazy guy come running through the back door with a whip going, get up, church. Run, come ran. Now, I, I read the story that there was a pastor who was teaching, and as he was teaching, four gunmen came running into the church building, masks on, and they said, okay, this is it. We're sick of that. We, those of you that are Christians... Line up against the wall. So everybody, okay, those of you that don't say you're Christians, get out. Get out. And they all left. These people are standing against the wall. Pastor's like, do what you got to do. The guys took out their masks. He says, okay, now you can preach. Hmm. What would happen today? Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Now I'm reading this from the message version. It says, do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? This is Jesus talking. Not so, I've come to disrupt and confront. From now on, when you find five in a house, it will be three against two, and two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against bride, and bride against mother-in-law. See, Jesus came to say that there is going to be confrontation. Just say the name Jesus. In this area, you get confrontation, don't you? Huh? You, you talk, start talking about Jesus as the Son of God? Confrontation. Well, you know what? I want you, I want you to watch this video because I think we've gotten so comfortable, we've forgotten about something. So check this out real quick. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show. And uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. And, I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New Just part of the New Testament. little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist.
but he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, if you don't know who this guy is, this is a magician from Penn and Teller. Okay, he's a confirmed atheist. What I want you to think about is what he said. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? Proselytize means going and sharing your faith. How much do you have to hate? I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. There are you in this room that are sitting there going, man, I don't know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with him. And I want you to know I love you. And that's why I'm about to tell you this. Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying the price for your sins so that you can have a relationship with him. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in him as your only hope of going to heaven. You don't have to do the four heavenly hops to Jesus. You don't have to do those things. Okay? You don't. Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me. That's it. So I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes, bow their head. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.